Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free at thejazzsession.com, and you'll also find links there to follow the show on Twitter or Facebook. And you can follow it using an RSS reader. You can subscribe in iTunes. The show really is omnipresent in the universe. So if there's any conceivable way for you to stay up with the Jazz Session, you'll find it there at thejazzsession.com. By the way, there's a new uh, jazz-only Twitter account that I started. Many of you follow me at Jason D. Crane, which I urge you to continue to do. And that's will still contain kind of the eclectic mix of music and politics and goofiness that uh, it always has. But I also started a new Twitter account solely for jazz-related tweets. Uh, so stuff about the show, uh, stuff about shows that I'm at and photos from those shows and that kind of thing. And that's uh, twitter.com slash jazzsesh, J-A-Z-Z-S-E-S-H. So you can follow that one too or exclusively or whatever you like. My guest today is – oh, wait a minute. Before I get to that, forget about my guest today. I'll talk about him in a minute. Let me thank the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show, respectsextet.com. Let me also thank Dave Rabel for designing the show's logo, and he is at twitter.com slash Dave Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. And let me remind you, if I might, to become a member of this very program. I can't remember whether I mentioned, I think I did on the last show, uh, Matthew Kaminsky and Eric Telford, who are recent members, and thanks to both of them. But please, join them, won't you, and become a member. The goal is to get 100 members by the 300th show. We're rapidly counting down. I've been running three shows a week in the month of May, and my intention was to go back to two shows a week in June, but I think just given the number of interviews I still have in the can from my initial frenzy when I moved to New York, I think I'm going to keep up the three shows a week in June, too. And then by the end of June, my intention is to get things much closer from the recording date to the air date. Uh, right now, there's usually three weeks or a month, and so it's hard to talk about upcoming events that aren't far in the future. And my goal is to narrow that window so that I record the interviews maybe a week before they get posted. Do you care about that? I don't know. But if you do, that's the scoop. So please do become a member and help keep this show going. Uh, oh, the point of all that, why I thought of that, was because uh, if I do three shows in June as well as May, that means the 300th show, the show by which I'm hoping to have 100 members, will be that much closer. And I'm not sure exactly what the new date will be, but it won't be the last show in August anymore. It will be significantly sooner than that. So that means that uh, the time to get those 300 members, that, that window is closing, and I need your help to keep this show going. I think I just said 300 members, but I meant 100 members. But I'd take 300. If one of you wants to join and you know get 200 of your friends to also join, I would absolutely accept that. And now on to my guest, Dave Douglas. Uh, Dave has been one of my favorite uh, trumpet players, but more importantly, one of my favorite thinkers uh, for more than a decade now since I first started listening to him. I guess significantly more than a decade now. Uh, one of the things that really attracted me to Dave, in addition to his music, and which you'll hear me gushing about during this interview, was uh, his fearlessness where politics was concerned, which I think is really cool. I always like it when artists talk about more than just the music. Yeah, I guess the music should stand on its own. That's fine. But I think it's cool when artists are able to use their platform uh, to do more and to talk about more than just music making. And Dave was always someone uh, who did that 
I remember particularly, you know, liner notes from his records that would have pretty overt political statements, um, and also just things he would say on the bandstand and, and choices he would make. And I guess some people might think that there's not really a point in doing that. Like, why would any jazz musician try to convert anyone from the bandstand or via their liner notes? Or, you know, other people, I guess, might comment, well, isn't isn't someone like that just preaching to the choir? Aren't most jazz people just lefties who feel that way already? Well, I heard Michael Moore say recently, and I thought this was a pretty good point, that the choir needs a song to sing. So even if you're preaching to the choir, sometimes they need that reinforcement. They need to be reminded that we're all in this together. And then the other thing that I think is pretty interesting is the idea that if you see someone you respect uh, make an explicit statement about a position that you hold, you might then be more likely the the next time it comes up uh, around the dinner table or in the office or wherever, you might be more likely yourself to speak up about that issue. And, and I think that's a really valuable role that artists can play. So I've always appreciated uh, that Dave does that and, and the other artists, Ted Sirota is another one who springs to mind, um, who have put uh, politics or put uh, kind of a social consciousness closer to the forefront of their music. And I think that's a, that's a great thing to do. Uh, Dave uh, always has a million irons in the fire, and uh, the most recent record that he's put out is one with his Brass Ecstasy band that was recorded live at Newport uh, Jazz Festival. And we'll hear a track from that right now. My guest is Dave Douglas. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I, uh, I wanted to start, I want to spend time talking about the music, but I want to start first talking about one of the things that's always made me respect you a lot, which is that you seem very committed to creating your own musical world mm. and controlling, and I mean that in the good sense of the word controlling, what happens within it, being very careful and conscientious about what happens in the, in the musical world that you move in, whether it's through the label or the projects that you associate yourself with. And I've always thought that was, that was something worthy of respect and emulation. And I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about when you decided to, to take a little more ownership and control of what you do. 
I think it just comes from, well, first of all, like most musicians, really caring about the music. Really, you know, at the end of the day, that's what's important. And realizing over the years that a lot of aspects of what goes on around the music reflect on the music. So it started with me, I think, with, you know, wanting to have a say on on the album covers for example you know what should the album look like and then i got really involved in a graphic representation of the music that was evocative that didn't you know lock something down into one meeting liner notes and you know i was always at the beginning sort of really concerned about the song sequence you know if i was going to do covers that there be a bigger story than you know hey this is a really cool tune and we're just gonna right and that's just me so i got involved in all these different aspects of presenting the music and over the years that's evolved into owning a label and and being involved in uh you know music on the internet um festival of new trumpet music you know trying to support the community of players doing creative work and sideman relationships which are a little more few and far between for me now than they used to be. Do you um, mean yourself in that role or the people that you bring into your own bands? Or Well, right now I was just talking about, you know, projects that I do outside of my own okay. work. You know, I, I think really hard about, you know, is this something that I can add to? Is this something that I'm going to really feel completely uh, engaged in? And, and so I, I'm kind of choosy about that because I want to you know when I go out on the stage I just want to be you know 100% involved on every level deeply profoundly involved the way that I hope musicians that I hire for my own projects feel you know I really want to bring them in and have them feel like they have a say and their voice counts and you know yes I might be a dictator but hopefully a benevolent (laughs) dictator but I I think that though you know this goes to your question a little bit too because you know how you deal with people how what are the relationships in a band between human beings i think that's a big part of what comes out in the music has it been important to you as you've assembled that uh, stable of musicians with whom you work uh, to to keep it fairly consistent over the years It, it seems to me that that's to some degree the case i think within each band i try to keep it consistent uh, I was telling someone the other day, it's really hard to get fired by me. <laughs> you know, you really have to go out of your way to get fired because I feel like once someone's in the band, you know, you deal with the whole person. And I'm not interested in just writing for one-off projects. I like the thing to have a developing story. So all of those bands that I had in the 90s, each of them made several recording projects together with a new book of music and there was always a sort of a progression to the way that we played you used the word stable i I don't really think about it that way because i hope that it's an ever-expanding um circle of musicians that i get to play with you know i'm i'm always really really happy discovering new relationships and playing with new people and and um and i think a lot of this you know, me starting a new group to do something comes from wanting to play with a new set of people that inspire me and write for them. And um, So I, I do feel like I try to keep the groups as stable as possible. 
and keep them together and keep them working in cycles. But also, I'm, I'm, I find I'm, I'm usually, there's always something going on where I'm kind of formulating a new outlet as well. Is that something you feel compelled to do, uh, that, that idea of not being at rest? Well, I think, you know, there's plenty of time to rest when you die, and I, I don't plan to do that for a long time, so <laughs> I, I think like a lot of musicians, you, you just hear music, you hear new things. A lot of times you're inspired by another piece of music, you hear something and you go, wow, you know. I wouldn't want to do that that way, but that opened up a new thought process for me about music. A lot of times it's other things. It, it could be, you know, a work of art in a museum or just something that happens on the street or a thought that occurs to you when you're riding your bicycle. Or And I think that I've been given this wonderful opportunity to be able to follow through on those kinds of ideas. Yeah. So I take advantage of that gift when I have the chance. That seems important, that idea of being able to follow through, because I, my guess is that many people are inspired, even many musicians who have active careers, but it's more difficult for them to find outlets to bring that inspiration to. 
It is very difficult, and I worked really, really hard to get in a position where I could do that, and I still work really hard to be in a position to pull off those ideas. And I still, you know, even though it's my own label, and I'm the boss, and I'm the tour manager, and I still have ideas from time to time that I can't convince anyone to do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I, there's a little bit of realism about it as well, you know. Sure. Uh, some ideas that I have are pretty obscure, and other ideas that I have, you know, luckily are things that a larger number of people are able to hear and, and understand, you know, and get something out of. I was really happy to get to see the Brass Ecstasy band uh, at the Vanguard, and there's a new live album recorded in Newport. Can you talk a little bit about that ensemble for people who may not know about it? Oh, it's so much fun. It's, uh, it's a brass band. It's trumpet, uh, myself, um, Vincent Chancy on French horn, Luis Bonilla on trombone, Marcus Rojas on tuba, and Nasheed Waits on drums. Um, and I guess we've been together in this incarnation for three or four years we did a studio album together uh, called Spirit Moves. Um, I called it Brass Ecstasy for one reason, because I wanted it to be a lot of fun, uh, but for another reason, because it's a very specific homage. It's a tribute, really, to, to Lester Bowie, who had a band called Brass Fantasy for many years. So the music is original music, but I think that like most music it ref you know it, it has echoes of music from other places and other times and uh i like that about it i think that you know lester Bowie being um what you might be able to call a classic avant-garde artist before the term became as as fraught as any other term sure <laughs> <laughs> uh who was also you know, able to play street brass band music and cover Chardet and, uh, you know, do all this music that was coming out of pop music, have a number one hit on the Austrian pop charts in 1986, and and yet still bring that sensibility of uh, wonder and excitement and risk to the music. That's something that I think that I value really highly, that I aspire to, and that I think should be celebrated. I went with a friend to that show who said afterward uh, that he had thought there was a chance, given the names in the band and and how established and how talented they were, that it would become kind of a a chops fest in the show, and he was really impressed that it didn't, that it was really a cooperative, collective effort, and that the music obviously was the first and foremost thing, that making good music together... Uh, and so I wonder how you how you manage uh, the I guess kind of those boundaries between here's my compositional vision for this band and here's the space that I'm allowing you the other musicians in this band to express yourselves and and have your own time and your own ideas on the stage. I think you know that's the big interest and challenge in composition for me. I mean that's the whole game. Is how do I write a tune that is still going to be this strong compositional presence? and find a way within the format, within the structure, within the template of that song, find a way to give everyone the freedom to do their thing. You know, that's a big part of the game. That's, that's the lesson of 
Gil Evans, of Cecil Taylor, of Charles Mingus, of Henry Threadgill, of uh, Thelonious Monk, you know, great jazz composers. That's what they do. It's this magic thing that is both on the page and not on the page at the same time. Yeah, that, <laughs> and it it sounds like, or it feels to me like it's possible that there's a different answer to that question, depending on the ensemble, depending on the composition. Like you, you solve that riddle in many, many, many different ways. Absolutely. I mean, I think every composition is the challenge to find another way to to do that, and uh, and every every group, definitely. I think that I began being a composing band leader in rebellion against um, theme solos, theme forms. At the most basic level, I think I originally started writing because I wanted to play with my friends and find something different structurally, a way for us to have that conversation that didn't always have to have that jam session type structure. And so I think I'm still searching for new ways, but I also think you don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Sometimes the most direct way to say something is to go back to theme, solos theme. So all of those sorts of ideas, interludes and structures, all of that is available. Um, And then when you combine that with great players who can think like composers and who are also great soloists, you know, all of that combines and makes, you know, what, what I would, I mean, here's another fraught musical term, but, you know, it's chamber music in the best sense, in the fact that there's no conductor, it's a small ensemble, you know, we're all independently playing our roles within the band, we're communicating back and forth, there's a flow, there's flexibility, um, there's empathy, within a band like that like people know especially in a brass group if somebody's struggling with their chops other people step up to the plate to cover in whatever way is most appropriate or get out of the way to leave room to someone who's clearly got it in hmm. that moment that's interesting i wouldn't i wouldn't have thought of that that idea of of that kind of mutual support uh even on something on the level of i'm having a hard time playing tonight and so i need you guys to cover for me and that wouldn't be something that someone would say. That's absolutely, just something absolutely. everybody's listening. You know, I think that I also write with the assumption that people are going to be listening, but also the insistence. You know, you can't really play those tunes unless everybody is there on the same page listening to what's happening. And, uh, I mean, it. you know, a lot of people make the analogy of a basketball team. Right. Because that's really a fluid set of five people working together in completely unexpected ways with a different result every time and yet there's only one goal sure i'll just mention for the listeners that in fact we did an entire jazz session on the jazz equals basketball equals jazz meme (laughs) with uh (laughs) no that's totally fine my ignorance (laughs) Noah friedlander of uh, free darko this great uh, who they've the Free Darko Collective has done two really impressive books on basketball, and he's also a big jazz head, so we did a, a, a big thing on jazz equals basketball wow. equals jazz, which is fun. I'll just I'll direct people to it that. makes me want to be a better basketball player. <laughs> yeah, I guess me too.
you know, when I saw that band, uh, the Brass Ecstasy Band, at the Vanguard, one thing I was thinking was, man, I'd love to see this band outside in the sunshine, too, because it feels like that would be a whole different way to experience that music, uh, like the folks at Newport. It is, I and I think that's one of the things that makes that Newport recording so special. It's like we're playing, and it was a sunny day, and there was all kinds of friends and family, and, and the audience was really with us, and... You know, and I'm playing, and I open my eyes, and I look out, and there's, like, boats going by, you know. It's like, it's kind of distracting. <laughs> but but it was great, and it was also, um, I, I don't want to sound obsequious or something, but, you know, it's such a legendary festival. And to actually see George Ween still there after all these years, you know, uh, people... Whatever, you know, people tell stories about George Ween and people have their opinion, but whatever. But this guy is like an icon, and it was I was just really touched to be a part of it yeah. with so many other great artists. Yeah, that history really happened, whatever the, whatever the DVD extras might be. All that stuff really did happen. All that music yeah. took place there. Uh, I'd like to ask you about the Keystone Band, too, um, which had a, a record fairly recently called Spark of Being. And mm-hmm. uh, Is it subtitled Expand, or is it is Expand just on the cover somehow or i'm never sure well, exactly how to say the title spark of being it, it was it was written as a all the music all the themes were written as a collaboration with the filmmaker bill morrison right and so the first disc of the three spark of being discs is the actual soundtrack to the film okay the second disc is called expand because it was a different set of recordings of the themes without the film in mind so played more like just with solos and you know more open blowing uh and then the third disc in the series is called burst because it was all tunes that didn't even make the film that i wrote at the time thinking you know this is going to be in the film so there's a whole new set of pieces on the third cd that are that are different and that sort of have a slightly different character than the soundtrack themes what was that experience like for you for uh, scoring that that film um i loved it i loved it because i mean i I always like visualizing music and and funnily enough you know when i'm just left to my own devices as a composer i think very visually but watching bill's films (laughs) It's it's kind of a paradox because, okay, now you have a specific visual image to write for. But in a way, the image made the relationship for me somehow more abstract, more mysterious. And uh, so also the fact that we were working each at the same time on our elements of the collaboration. So I would send him music themes and he would send me film clips. And we went back and forth quite a bit and a lot of the editing of the themes and uh, the writing had to do with things that he was doing in the film. Um, The other aspect that was a little different than previous Keystone records was that I did a lot of pre-production with DJ Olive um, and Adam Benjamin. Uh, and a lot of that was remote, too. Adam lives in California. Uh, Olive was traveling all over the world while we were in the process of making this. So um, I had to learn uh, a bunch of software applications <laughs> in order to make this work. And that that was interesting in and of itself, but it really affected the way that I was bringing the electronics into the music in a sure. new way. 
um, to have that much interactivity. Uh, I like to think of bringing in VJ Olive like it's just another instrument. I get asked a lot, you know, what do you think? Does a DJ really have a place in a jazz band? And I, I just feel like it's like anything else. You write for a saxophonist, you have to learn something about the instrument and what it can do and what it can't do. And what a great player of the instrument right. can do, the human being. <laughs> so it's not just, hey, bring in a DJ. It's DJ Olive, this guy, Gregor, who is this brilliant sound artist. Um, and it got me a lot closer to knowing how he works and how he thinks and mm. how he develops a vocabulary. Um, and a lot of the sounds on the soundtrack and on, on the full trilogy of CDs... Um, are specific to this project are, were found in archives either of uh, sound effect archives or also um, archives of electronic music that we were given access to by Stanford University. seen the film, I've only heard the music, uh, and I know I should see the film, but uh, having heard the music, it made me wonder how how programmatic, for lack of a better word, is the music? How you, you mentioned that seeing the visual image actually in some ways made the relationship more mysterious for you, but I wonder how that translates into the relationship between the music that you wrote and what we would see on the screen at any given moment. The film is pretty abstract. It's built from archival and damaged, distressed footage. If you're familiar with Bill Morrison's work, am, that's yeah. kind of the way he... That's the way he works. I've always been performing it. Never been in the audience for it. Sure. But it's called Spark of Being because it's a phrase that Mary Shelley used in the original Frankenstein novel. And it was... The, the, the structure of the film and the music is loosely based on the Frankenstein novel, the 1817 uh, first appearance of the monster. And we, we, use, we ended up there because both of us were grappling with this idea of arts and science, mm. technology and humanity. 
and how they fit together, how they don't fit together, both as a theme, but also in a nuts and bolts way as a part of both of our processes of, of working together. You know, creating something out of pre-existing materials that have been either damaged or recontextualized. So the film and the music follow this structure of what happens in the Shelley novel. But we, we <laughs> early on, Bill was using some sort of subtitles to describe what was happening, and it was. It just I, you know, he was tinkering with it and tinkering. I knew he wasn't happy, and eventually we just said, you know, well, what if we just took all the words away, and that seemed to make it click. You know, each chapter has a title, but there's no sort of subtitling explaining what's going on, and I think that works really well mm. because even if you didn't know the Frankenstein story, there's a progression to the way the film unfolds. And it's very abstract. It's not a, 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 a linear narrative, and yet you know you're going somewhere. And I do think that at the end of the day, um, the music sort of tells that same story. spent time mastering some new technology to make this project happen. Can you see applying that same technology to, to future projects? Have you started thinking about what you might do with new ideas of collaboration? Or I, I'm, I'm sort of dreaming up the next Keystone project right now, and I know that I will use that technology and probably new technologies that don't yet exist. Sure. And the dreaming up project for me is a very difficult one. It's really scary. Because I'm, and this happens with all my projects, you know, I'm really trying to think up, okay, you know, what can I do that doesn't exist, that I don't know how to do, that can take the band in new places, that can, you know, imagine a new theme that has a form, that has a meaning and a structure and a, something about it, and yet doesn't yet exist 
and it's kind of really scary. It's like, okay, now I have to jump off another cliff. Let's hope there's a trampoline at the bottom this time, like there was last right. time, you know. <laughs> and then I find, you know, when I get like halfway down that road, once once I have a sometimes vaguely defined notion of what the theme is, what the program is, what what the idea is, um, I can start to write music. And once I start to write music, things become a lot clearer. And and sometimes just by dint of what I end up writing. That gives me a clearer focus on what the original idea was in the first place. Sure. Do you find, uh, are these ideas things that are inspirational in nature, or is it uh, the result of the process of sitting down every day and, uh, I don't know, flexing new writing muscles? Or I'm not, I guess I'm a, little, I'm a little hazy on what you actually do to achieve this end of jumping off the cliff. What does that actually entail for you when you get up in the morning? I think it's something that happens instinctively for me. I'm mm-hmm. kind of always thinking about it in, in, in odd moments. Sometimes when I'm practicing, sometimes when I'm writing. You know, composing, you're always in a lot of different phases. You know, some sets of pieces, you're just in the, the mode of, oh my God, i got to get all the parts right. I'm cleaning this up. The music's finished. And then other pieces, you're like, well, this is the music idea is almost ready. It's so close, you know. And then something else might be just in its infancy. Mm-hmm. So I'm always sort of jumping back and forth between all these different levels of involvement. And as I'm doing that, I'm massaging the ideas for the next project as well. Sure. And part of that is while I'm playing, sometimes it is a flash of inspiration but i always feel like that flash of inspiration wouldn't happen unless there was all the underpinning thought that was going on behind it you know what i mean yeah absolutely so like something might happen on a gig and then the next day i'm i'm in the airport or i'm on a train or something and i go wow that's it but it's the answer to something that's been floating around in my mind for some months and is the relationship between, for example, Lester Bowie and the existence of brass ecstasy, is that a is that a clearer, kind of less aha moment relationship because the the inspiration is so much clearer, so much more apparent? Um you know, before I had the band, um I wrote a couple tunes that I dedicated to Lester. And sort of not no one of them was for a pre-existing band back probably ten years ago, and I just knew I just it was for him, you know. It was, and then um, when the Festival of New Trumpet Music celebrated his legacy in two thousand five, um, was when I dug up those couple things that I'd written with him in mind, and I thought about okay, how can I you know, put this in a context that is going to really honor him. And and that was when the idea of having this brass band came about. So sure. it was a mixture of a lot of different things that happened. I've always been grateful to you because uh, as the result of one of your records, I discovered Rufus Wainwright, who I've oh. since gone on to really dig into and, and love his music and seen him many yeah. times. And uh, that, I guess, leads me to, well, A, say thank you, but B, to ask a question, which is you... You seem to have just an incredible ear for picking tunes by other mm. people that you're going to cover. Mm. Not not tunes most people would ever think of necessarily, mm. but that are 
just so good <laughs> by the time you're done with them. That's not a particularly astute critique of the music, but they're just so no, great. I'll, I'll I just take, love it. I'll take so good, so good, so great. Yeah, I'll, I'll take that. That's fine. Uh, can, can you talk a little bit about your process for, I mean, is it just, I, I love this song and I think I could do something with it? Uh, is it something as simple as that? Mm. I don't know. I, you know, I always wonder, I wonder what, I've, I've done a few Rufus Wainwright tunes now. I always wonder what he would think, you know, I, because it's so different at the end of the day and without the lyric it's almost a different thing um but i i um i think before i cover something i listen to it for a long time i really internalize it try to learn it um you know play around with it um i just did this arrangement of um, billy strayhorn's lush life for Brass Ecstasy, and that'll be coming out on our portable series in June. And you played that at the Vanguard. And we played it at the Vanguard, yeah. And uh, that was something I wasn't even sure I wanted to do, but I was, you know, I've known that tune forever, but I I went and I got all the different versions of it, including his, uh, where he's singing, and apparently was at a party or something. I don't know if you've heard that. I have, yeah. It's hilarious. (laughs) It's great. (laughs) <laughs> and it's so different than the way most people do it. Right. Um, and for me, the way in was, you know, let me find another way. The, you know, the form of that song is so unusual. And so I was like, that's what turned me on. And so I said, let me play with the form of this and see what I can come up with. Um, but the first time I heard the brass play those voicings from the last couple bars of the song i was like okay you know we have to do this (laughs) and then i i just kept playing with it and found all these other places that that we could go and and um i think that's you know for me to do to, to to cover something it that's really what it's about is can we find our own way sure in a in a profound way not just you know hey let's do it fast and we'll do it as a polka that's hilarious. <laughs> you know, not a flippant way, but, you know, really, like with um, Poses. Yeah, which is you know, the, I really the first one I really sort of did yeah. a transposition, a, tra- a, a, a transformation of the song itself so that it would really sound like it was coming from us. And I... I mean, I, I do think... I, I, I talk about Billie Holiday a lot. In, in interviews and she was the first singer that I remember hearing and the first musician that I remember trying to emulate in learning a song hmm. and I think the message of Billie Holiday for me um, was to always make a song your own find your own way in and find your own thing to say about it that's not like anyone else's and so I think that is still a, a huge challenge to me as a composer um, but also as a performer you know if I'm going to go out there I really have to find my own thing to say and that entails risk sure you know that means that you're not going to do it the way everyone else does it and that means that some people are not going to really be able to relate right. to that <laughs> so 
We're uh, we're out of time, so I'll just ask you my uh, my standard final question, which is: oh. uh, Can you talk about uh, something not related to your own work? Uh, could be a book you've read, a film you've seen, something that you'd just like to share with other people and uh, and encourage them to check out. You know, the news is so incredibly difficult. Um, there's this trumpet player who lives in Paris named Ibrahim Malouf, who I collaborated with last year, and we're going to do a bigger project together next year. And his records are really great. He just put out a new one. Um, I can't remember what label he's on, but I was just in Paris a couple weeks ago, and we got to have dinner together, and we were talking about what was going on. Um, you know, his, his family is originally from Lebanon. He still mm. goes down there quite a bit, and it was it was just so amazing. I I read a lot of news. You know, I read a, a few papers and magazines. You know, I follow what's going on in politics in in the world and in the globe, in the environment, in um, uh, in the arts, in sports, and yet. You know, here's Ibrahim with this view that was so totally different than anything I had heard from being on the ground, and it, it kind of made me listen to his music in a new way. He he uses electronics, but he's also writing for quarter tone trumpet, so he uses traditional uh, Arabic scales in his music, much like Amir El Safar, who's here in New York. Mm-hmm. And so he's somebody that's really worth. Um, checking out. Will you spell his last name for folks who are going to look him up? It's Ibrahim Malouf. M-A-A-L-O-U-F. Thanks. Well, I I feel I like we, we had more time. Yeah, I feel I like think. we barely scratched the surface. We didn't even get into the politics side of things, which is another huge no, thing that's that makes probably me love to you. My benefit. And, uh, no, you and I are, uh, <laughs> I think, in, in perfect mouth. harmony. Oh, man. Um, Man, it's been at, such a at least there's a long form birth certificate out in the public sphere now. Exactly, you know, we can all rest we can, assured. We can all rest easy. <laughs> Thank God for Donald Trump. Is what I say every night when I when I go to bed. He is That's, so proud of himself. Yeah, yeah, he's really a great human being. <laughs> See now, now we're gonna. This will be dated now. To be like, whenever this does come out, <laughs> That's right. This will be such old news. Yeah, he'll be the president and. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, man, I'm, I'm just I'm such a big fan of you and, and what oh, you do, and you. I thank you for taking the time to come on the show. It's really been a pleasure to well, talk to you. Well, you know, I'm a fan of you, too. I think what you're doing is really, really inspiring and, and amazing, and I wish you all the luck and, and everything. Thanks. I hope you'll come back. It's been great to talk to you. Thanks. We should do it again. Let's.
That's music from Dave Douglas and the Brass Ecstasy Band. I'm Jason Crane. This is the Jazz Session, presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free at thejazzsession.com, so head there right now and you can listen to all the shows that there have been, and you can also become a member, and I hope you will. And now I urge you to get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.